We'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9 for the final time in our study of this chapter. As you're turning there, what we've been doing in our study of Romans is at the end of every chapter, if you're maybe new or haven't been around for, for the ending of a chapter, we've, we've taken some pause and, and looked back at the whole chapter with an overview, kind of a bird's eye view rather than the worm's eye view that we've been doing and going through it verse by verse, and looked at a theological review of the whole chapter. And this is important. All of us know a little bit about working puzzles. Um, I like puzzles that have no more than 10 pieces. Uh, I can see everything. There's not a lot of work to do. I like that. But every now and then, my family decides to open up one of these thousand-piece puzzles. Why? I don't know. But in order to get a bearing on what what it is, is you, you set the, the box top over at the side, right? And you look at the color schemes and, and you get the individual pieces and you begin matching and you say, how does this piece of the puzzle fit in the bigger picture? Every passage of the Bible is like that. You have to know, what does this word mean in this sentence? What does this sentence mean in this verse? What does this verse mean in this paragraph? What does this paragraph mean in this pericope? What does this pericope mean in this chapter? The chapter in the section, the section in the book, the book in the genre, the genre in the testament, and the testament in the whole of God's word. How does this fit? Well, Romans 9 is a piece of the puzzle of Romans, which is a piece of the bigger puzzle of God's mosaic of his revelation to man. This is a very important piece. He's making an argument about God and God's credibility as it relates to Israel. He's been speaking of salvation by grace through faith for eight chapters. He's going to talk about practical applications to that beginning in chapter 12. And here, right at the end of this theological section, what he does is he he puts God on full display to answer the question, is God believable? Is God credible? And he does so in an interesting way by asking some questions that you and I would ask as Bible students and everyone asks when they look at God and salvation. Every serious Bible student eventually faces the question of the sovereignty of God and salvation. You may face it young, and you may face it later, but you're all, all of us have faced it. I've I've been involved in question and answer sessions as a pastor for, for years and years, and if there's no set agenda and you can answer any question on anyone's heart, I don't remember a single session where someone hasn't asked this question. How can God be sovereign and man be responsible at the same time? Typically, they say, how does God's sovereignty and man's free will go together? But as we studied in Romans 6, there is no free will. We are slaves to sin. We are not born with free will. We're born with broken wills. Still, we have to ask, how does it work out? We're called to believe, and yet God is sovereign. Studying Romans 9 addresses that, and it's a bit like cleaning out that closet you know which closet I'm talking about, don't you? That, that closet. You need to clean it out. Finally, you do it. And once you open it up, you find things that you forgot you had, things that you needed, things you've been looking for. But it's a lot of work. Romans 9 is a little bit of that closet that people know is in the Bible, but if we, do we really have to open that drawer? Well, I would suggest that you see the glorious side of a sovereign God that you don't get anywhere else. This chapter is about God. 
God's sovereignty, his providence, his rule over the lives of people, his foreknowledge, his predestination, his choice. Now, after several years of seminary, I came to this conclusion, I hope you have too. Romans 9 follows Romans chapter, don't say 6, chapter 8. How does Romans 8 end? We love Romans 8. Romans 8 ends with this great statement that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Is that good news? That's great news. Unless you're a Jew reading this. Nothing can separate us from God, Paul, and yet you've just said that God has now given salvation to Gentiles through a crucified Messiah who is raised from the dead and not through all of the covenants, the promises, the blessings of being Jewish. Has God now turned his back on us as the Jews? That's the right question to ask, and it's the question that Paul answers in three successive chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Even more than that, it's an accosting uh, accusation on the character of God. If God cut off Israel after he made promises to them, then what makes you and I as Christians believe he won't cut us off? As a friend of mine once said, Israel had their chance and they blew it, so God moved on. Do you blow it? Because if that statement is true, then we are all in mortal fear for our souls this morning. Paul understands that, so he uses Romans 9 to talk about Israel and the credibility of God. Now, Israel, excuse me, Romans 9 is a part of this three-chapter section. Uh, Romans 9 looks at Israel's past. Romans 10 looks at Israel's present state. And Romans 11 looks at Israel's future. But here in chapter 9... Paul's going to return to a point that he's been making since chapter 2. Namely, salvation is by grace through faith. It is not by lineage. No matter if you're Jewish, no matter if you can trace your, your direct ancestry back to Abraham and where he lived, that doesn't make you any more godly. Salvation is not by merit. Beginning in the middle of chapter 3 all the way through the end of chapter 8, he goes over and over and over hammering the fact that no one is saved by works. You can't be good enough. You can't try hard enough even though the Jews were trying to do that. Nor is it by surgery. Remember in Romans 4 when we had that strange sermon entitled, Salvation is not by surgery? What that means is it's not by circumcision. And actually, the Jews during what we call Second Temple Nomism, the, the time of uh, Paul and the time of Jesus and in the temple understanding of the law, they had actually defaulted to saying that you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised. Remember Acts 15? When, they, when the, uh, there was this big discussion where people were saying, well, you have to be circumcised to be saved, right? You have to be Jewish to be Christian, is what they were saying. Salvation is, has always been, the result of God's mercy and his grace, and that's exactly what Paul dials in. So what I want to do is break this chapter down into three big sections, just as a review. If you're visiting with us today, we, we do things a little slower than we're going to do today. We're going to do all 33 verses. We're going to do it fast. Three big blocks with some subpoints under it. If you want to take notes, that's fine. Otherwise, uh, you can just listen. The first we're going to look at is the dilemma of Israel's unbelief. Paul theologically has to deal with the dilemma of Israel's unbelief. And he begins with Paul's pronounced grief. 
this indescribable pain that Paul has. Verse 1, I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. He says, my credibility, the credibility of Christ, and the credibility of the Holy Spirit will affirm that what I'm saying to you is true. What true? Now, this is important. Paul's just said, God has opened up salvation to the Gentiles, which could make some people conclude that he's given up on the Jews. He says, God is my witness. Christ knows, the Holy Spirit knows that, verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Great sorrow, unceasing grief. About what? For I could wish, he doesn't say I wish, if it were possible, I could wish that I myself were damned, accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's saying, I have such a burden for my Jewish brothers and sisters that if it were possible for me to sacrifice and cash in my own salvation that they would get theirs I'd be willing to do that. That's a burden for the lost. As a practical application of that, I mean, do, do we have great sorrow and an unceasing grief over those that we love who are lost? This is not the words of a hyper-Calvinist. Remember his heart as he moves to the rest of this chapter. He is broken over their disbelief and unbelief. And then he says, you should have known better. You should have gotten it. So he goes into Israel's unique privileges. I'll just fly through this really fast. He says, remember the Jews, they they are a special nation in verse 4. It says, who are Israelites? They've been adopted by God in verse 4b. To whom belongs the adoption of sons. He's already spoken of the adoption of Christians in chapter 8. This is the adoption that goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12. Thirdly, they have had God's glory revealed to them. It says, and the glory, probably talking of the Shekinah glory that was demonstrated in, in the temple worship, in the, uh, the, the mount where God's presence came and they saw that smoke, that glory. And they've been given the covenants in verse 4. And the covenants. This is the contract that God made with the people of Israel. And they've been given the law in verse 4. The giving of the law is impressive. They owned the revelation of God and they took great pride in it. Remember chapter 2? They thought because they had the law that that was all they needed. Their appreciation of the law did not equate to application of the law. Also in verse 4, they have the privilege of worshiping him and the temple service. He prescribed, his, here's how to come near me and they had those instructions. Seventh, they had the Messianic promises and the promises. He's saying, you should have got this. Bethlehem, Nazareth, Jerusalem, Judea, all of this prophesied and you didn't see it. Whose are the fathers? They had that godly ancestry. They had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then finally, they, they are the people from which the Christ came, and from whom, at the end of verse 5, is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. I can't believe you, you understand that the Messiah is Jewish, Paul says. The Messiah, he came from your prophecies, your book, your, your Torah, your law. He's the fulfillment, and you didn't see it. He deals with the dilemma of Israel's unbelief. 
Now that's going to lead to some questions. Well, why did they so utterly reject the gospel? Why did they disbelieve? That takes us to the second big block that we need to look at. And this is where Paul spends the most time. He gives a defense of God's sovereign selection. Remember, this is an interesting passage because the, the authorial intent of what he's first saying is he's talking about the remnant of Israel really believing Israel inside the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel. And he'll say in a moment, not all Israel, ethnic Israel, is saved believing Israel. So he's talking about election, the remnant theology. But his, his words principalize with the Gentiles, the same God who chose some Jews and not all Jews is the same God who chooses some to believe and not all to believe. The same God who is sovereign in the electing of the remnant of Israel is the same God who is sovereign in the election of believers. And as any good exegete or expositor would do, he uses scripture to prove his points. He's going to give God a defense for his sovereignty. And to do that, he gives examples from the scripture. The first is this, the example of Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael and Isaac. Now, before we look at this, remember the law of the progenitor. That meant that it was a very strict uh, sense of inheritance in the ancient Near East, still to this day, that the firstborn inherits the property and the authority and the blessings of the father. Who can dis- he can dispense those to the second and third born. He can dispense those to the brothers and sisters. But he is the, the, uh, the, the, the one that the will points to most and says, you're taking over for dad. God goes against that. In these examples. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Isn't it interesting? He gives all these promises about Israel. And their conclusion. Well I guess God's word didn't work. Well no no. It's not as though the word of God failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. They are not all children. Because of they, are, they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. He's saying not everyone who is Jewish. Was saved in the Old Testament sense. You say, what's the Old Testament sense? By grace through faith in God's revealed means. Then he goes to this Ishmael and Isaac. Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And then he gives the narrative, a little bit of the narrative. For this is the word of the promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And that's different than Abraham's firstborn. Remember, Abraham and, uh, and Sarah were old, they were, they were barren, they had no children. And so uh, Sarah knew that God had promised Abraham a son, and so she decided that she knew better than God. So she goes into the one of Abraham's handmaidens named, remember, Hagar. And um, Abraham and Hagar have a son, and his name is Ishmael, that's another whole study. He's the father of all the Arab nations, by the way. That was not God's promise because he promised through Abraham and Sarah. And so, sure enough, the angel comes back. Sarah says, you're going to, the angel tells Sarah, you're going to have a son. She laughs. She thought it was funny. Sure enough, a year later, she has a son. And this is Isaac. God's promise went through Isaac, the secondborn, not Ishmael, the firstborn. His ways are not our ways. That's an example. God chose the one from his sovereign perspective that is different than a human thinking logic. It was contrary to the way we would think. If that's not enough, and by the way, these are each successive arguments he gives that gives 
They get stronger and stronger, and even the, the nails on the chalkboard scratch harder and harder, where you say, really? The second example is of Esau and Jacob. Not only this, verse 10, there were, was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, he just sticks that in by one man. Abraham had two sons, not by... Uh, there, there, was, there was one source, not two. By one man, when she had conceived twins by our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, here's the point, the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purposes, according to his choice, would stand, not because of the works, but because of him who calls. It was said of her, to her, the older will serve the younger. There's that law of the progenitor turned upside down again. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. If you go back and look at the narrative, Esau was born and Jacob was trailing him. He's actually holding on to his ankle as he was born, these twins. Esau was born first. They tied a little string around and uh, appendage so he would know that this is the firstborn. They would not be able to uh, get him confused later. This is the first one. And yet, he was not the one who was the son of the promise. It was Jacob. Then this is interesting. He says, this is God's choice, and he, and he pounds it with two statements. First of all, we, we know this because it was before they were born. God made the choice of the secondborn of Jacob before they were even born. And secondly, before they had done anything good or bad, right or wrong. That's important because Abraham, excuse me, Paul knows that we likely know the story of Jacob and Esau. And if you read the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob is no saint and Esau is no devil, right? You see the incredible grace of Esau. Remember when they, uh, they stole, the birthright is stolen and at the, they, they come and they find each other in this field and Jacob is fully expecting to be killed or going to battle. And Esau is what? He's merciful, he's gracious. So Esau wasn't all bad. And Jacob, was he all good? Have you read Jacob's story? His name means deceiver. He kept right in the line of his father, just lying and lying and getting his own way. And God said, yeah, I chose one, not the other. What's the point? It's not on the basis of works. He did it to show that his sovereign decrees are not based on what yet unborn human beings might or might not do, which harkens back to chapter 8, predestination, chosen, selected, foreknown, And just when you're wrestling with, he loved Jacob and he hated Esau, ooh, that makes me a little uncomfortable. He gives the example of Pharaoh. And it gets, I mean, the nails are scratching hard on the chalkboard here. Because he knows what you're saying and he knows what we're asking. The, spirit of, the genius of the Spirit of God to inspire Paul, right when we start to say, hang on, he answers the question. What do we say after I've loved Jacob and I've hated Esau? Wait a minute, that's not just, that's not fair, is it? So Paul says, what shall we say then? Hmm, there is no injustice, unfairness with God. Is there, may it never be. Don't you dare think that God is unfair because if God had been fair, they would have both gone to hell. 
How does this work? What's the principle that made God love Jacob and hate Esau? What is there in the divine nature that makes that work? Well, drum roll, verse 15. For he says to Moses, this is Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's what, you're call, what we call a non-answer. But you understand this answer. You understand an answer where you give an answer that's not the answer that could be given. You say, what do you mean by that? My parents, I think they, they coined this. I know that you've probably done it as well. As a parent, as a child, you've certainly heard this. As I don't mean to blow anything, kids, but we heard this from our parents too. Why do I have to do this, Mom? Because I, what? I said so. That's not an answer. Does Mom have answers? Absolutely. But she's not inclined to give them at that point. Why can't I do that, Dad? Because I said so. Who will you have compassion on, God? The one I will have compassion. But that doesn't, that's no answer. Exactly. And if you think I haven't given you an answer yet, the claws on the scratching chalkboard get even screechier. Verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It's not the guy who thinks or the gal who thinks or chooses. It's totally dependent on God's sovereignty. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, just when you, if you're explaining this to someone, you almost want to say, you, you want to give so many footnotes and so many qualifications, which I find interesting, Paul gives none. He just explains it. Because just when you think, ooh, that makes me uncomfortable, wait till you hear this one. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, verse 18, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Isn't that interesting? This goes beyond just God giving mercy. This is an active case of hardening a person's heart. Heart. Now, when you read the narrative of Pharaoh, you know that Pharaoh hardened his own heart several times before it said God hardened his heart. Man's responsibility, God's sovereignty working together there. But the point here Paul makes is, yeah, he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So not only does he exercise mercy on who he, who he will, the people who don't get that mercy, he hardens their heart. It raises a critical theological question. If God shows mercy to whom he wishes, hardens whom he wishes, so that his will is the ultimate cause of, cause of everyone's faith, all that occurs, then how in the world could God find fault or blame with anyone who didn't believe, right? Isn't that the question? If he hardened the heart of Pharaoh, couldn't Pharaoh say, 
you, made, you did this to me. And for a person who doesn't believe, couldn't they say, well, I'm not elect. I'm going to live like I want. Wouldn't it be great if Paul answered that question? Verse 19. You will say to me then, <laughs> why does God still find fault? For who resists his will? If this is true, if the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay, how can anyone find fault with God? How can God rather have find fault with anyone? The finding fault with God is going to come in this next verse. It's interesting, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault? How can he blame these people if he's sovereign? And Paul gives a head-scratching answer in verses 20 to 23. On the contrary, who are you, O man? And that's rephrasing the first sentence, which means that, the first question, which means that man is saying, who are you, God, to do this? Paul says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? And instead of giving us the final answer, he gives an illustration. The thing molded, he goes to pottery, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have a right, not have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Does God not have prerogative as the creator and providential sovereign of the universe to make these decisions? This is God's way of saying, you have a question about that? Put your finger over your mouth. Who are you to demand an answer from me? It's a weak illustration, weak analogy, but we all understand that. Son, do X and Y. Why? Because I said so. I will not do it or believe that I should until you give me an answer. That's shaking the fist at the authority that God's given. What Paul's saying here is just be quiet. Just be quiet. And then, when you think this is uncomfortable enough, it can't get any worse from a human perspective, verse 22 comes, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And this this brings up the issue that so many theologians for so many centuries and millennia have been debating of, does God... Uh, uh, hold to the doctrine of double predestination. Does he predestine some to salvation and predestine others to hell? This verse would seem to indicate that that's true at some level. Now, hang on to the end of the passage before you get nervous, okay? They were prepared for destruction, invented, created so that they might be destroyed, and lest anyone say that's not right, that's not fair, the issue is why would he have any vessels of mercy that's our starting point. All of us deserve to be in this category. We are all running as fast as we can away from him. And when he picks us off and brings us to himself, that's mercy. Don't be nervous. The end of the passage is coming. Why did he tell, do this? Why do we even know about this? For a believer, this is so encouraging. He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand. 
That's the believers. Even us whom he also called from among the Jews, not only from among the Jews, but also from among Gentiles. He did this to show the riches and the depth of his grace. But this expands the the impact. It's like throwing that rock in the water. You can see the the ripples get wider and wider. This is the next level where now he includes this doctrine to those of us who are Gentiles, to anyone who would be converted. He says, no one has any right to question God and his sovereign choice. He's the potter, we are the clay. This brings us to this great divide of what's called Arminian and Calvinistic theology. Arminius was that theologian who who, uh, uh, responded against Calvin who said that God is not sovereign over salvation. Man is sovereign to make his choice in salvation. The Calvinist perspective, John Calvin taught that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation and it's our responsibility to respond. R.C. Sproul writes this about the Arminian view of this. The Arminian believes that the ultimate basis for our salvation is whether or not we choose to receive Jesus Christ. Whoever chooses Christ will be saved and whoever refuses Christ will be damned. Those who choose Christ will be elect, and those who do not choose Christ will lose any possibility of election. In the Armenian view of theology, election is based upon human decision. Then Sproul says this. This is a serious distortion of what the Apostle Paul is teaching here, end quote. You cannot make this passage say anything other than God is sovereign. Paul keeps asking the questions that he knows we're asking because he's making the point we think he's making. Now he reaches back to some prophets for his example. He goes to Hosea in verses 25 to 26 as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, my beloved. This is coming off the end of verse 24 where the extension of salvation is not just to the Jews but to the Gentiles. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. If you go back to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, when Abraham was called to be the father of the Jewish nation, the purpose was to make of all nations believers, right? The Great Commission goes back to Abraham. All nations were to be blessed through him. And yet they hogged and hoarded God's word as Romans 2 tells us, thinking that the mere possession of the law made them special, even though they weren't obeying it. The Old Testament prophets predicted over and over that God would not limit his grace to Israel only. He would save repenting Gentiles. And Hosea says that they're called the sons of the living God. He reaches for the same issue back to Isaiah The example from Isaiah, verses 27 to 29. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Now we find the issue of, at the core and and at the heart of election and God's choice. There's a remnant out of the many. Even in Israel, there's the remnant and the many. The true Israel and those who were just called the Not all Israel was really Israel. Not all who were Jewish were true believers, in other words. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Judgment is coming. Just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabaoth 
had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become, we would resemble Gomorrah. You know what he's saying? Listen, let's just get, let's get the score right. Had God not rescued any of us, we would all have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, which was the living illustration in the Old Testament of the cul-de-sac of sin, the worst demonstration of sin. He's saying, talk about picking the Gentiles. If he hadn't picked any of us, we'd be in trouble. Even the remnant would perish apart from the grace of God. Now, at this point in the passage, Paul understands what we're struggling with. More than you know, he understands what we're struggling with. First of all, if you want to know if you're Jewish reading this, well, does that mean God is finished with, with, with us as Jews? Go over to chapter 11, verse 1. I wish that you would bear with me a little uh, foolishness. I'm sorry, chapter, I'm in the wrong book. Romans chapter 11, verse 1, where he, he marks and puts a stake in the ground for their potential misunderstanding of God's future. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. There it is. And then in chapter 11, he's going to explain that there is a future for ethnic Israel who believes, not ethnic Israel who've only been circumcised. All this choosing, not choosing, softening, hardening of hearts. How would Paul conclude a section on God's sovereignty? Here's the third block. It's very brief. The sovereign choice of God and the required faith of man. He's going to make this point. First of all, he, he says, through faith the Gentiles have found righteousness even though they weren't looking for it. They weren't seeking it. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they, weren't, they didn't have the law and try to obey all the nuances of the law to impress God. They attained righteousness. That's perfection. That's justification. Even the righteousness which is by, does it say election, choice, predestination right there? What does it say? By faith. He ends the whole discussion on sovereignty by saying, you find salvation by faith. Then he turns to Israel. Secondly, he says, through the law, Israel has not found righteousness, even though they were seeking it. Look at this again. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Why did they fail? He answers the questions he raised in the first of the chapter. Here it is. Because they did not pursue it by faith. How did they pursue it? But though, as it were, by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's Christ. He's the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Because just as Isaiah says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be shamed or disappointed, put to shame. Paul ends this incredible section on God's absolute authority and sovereignty with a discussion on a man's responsibility to believe. I think every believer has a sense of this, whether you understand it or not. 
The reason is, most of us have prayed for the salvation of someone we love, right? I don't know many, if any, believers who've not prayed for the salvation of someone they love. Why would you do that? What theology are you exercising when you do that? If you're asking God to save someone, doesn't that mean God invading the will and doing something to transform the heart so that they will believe? If God is not sovereign over salvation, why ask him to do anything? And yet, even my Arminian friends tend to pray that God would save their friends. Why? What are you asking? You're asking that he exercises his sovereignty. True? We pray for unbelievers. To ask God to save people is to affirm that he's sovereign in salvation. To explain to them the gospel is to affirm the need for them to believe and have faith to be saved. God is sovereign in salvation. Man is responsible to have faith. God's character drives us to how we think of salvation. But if you're like me, you still think God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and somehow that's, that's got to come together, right? Well, as we often do, we need to turn to our old friend, Mr. Spurgeon, because Brother Charles has helped so much on this. This is a paragraph, a longer paragraph, but I want to read it to you because how he ends is so important. Just please think with me as I read this. Spurgeon writes, The system of truth is not one straight line, but two. No man will ever get a right view of the gospel until he knows how to look at two lines at one time. I'm taught in the book to... In one book, to believe that what I sow, I shall reap. I am taught in another place, it is not of him that wills or runs, but of God who shows mercy. That's from Romans 9. I see in one place God presiding over all in providence, and yet I see, I cannot help but seeing, that man acts as he pleases, and that God has left his actions to his own will in a great measure. Now, if I were to declare that Man was so free to act, and there was no precedence of God over his actions. I should be driven very near to atheism. And if, on the other hand, I declare that God has so overrule, so overrules things as man is not free to be enough to be responsible, I am driven at once to antinomianism or fatalism. It just doesn't matter. That God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. It is just the fault of our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to one another. If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for his actions, that is true. And it is my own folly that leads me to imagine that two truths can ever contradict each other. And then this. These two truths, I do not believe, can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil. What a great quote. 
They would take two pieces of metal, put them on an anvil, and forge them together. He says, these two truths, man's responsibility, God's sovereignty, these two truths I do not believe can ever be welded into one by any human anvil, but, but one they shall be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind shall never pursue them far enough to see where they converge. But they do converge. And they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God where all truth doth spring, end quote. You know what that quote does for me? It just gives me a, a deep breath. Like, okay, I don't have to make it all work. God's brain does not fit between my ears. Oh, I've tried to shove it in there. It doesn't work. So where we end with Paul, if we, if we hear him correctly, is that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. No one will come to faith except he draws them. No one can come to faith unless he's electing them. Man is absolutely responsible to have faith and believe the gospel. And they're both true. Either that, or Paul lied to us, and the Holy Spirit did not inspire him. Those are not good options. So are you willing, with me, to take that plunge of faith to say, I'm okay believing both. I'm okay, I'm okay with the tension, knowing that they look parallel in my mind, but as Spurgeon says, when they finally converge, it's at the throne. As Lewis said, every, out of every believer's mouth when they come to heaven will be the two words, of course. It'll make sense then. I think God calls us to believe these truths even if we don't like them in our flesh. Let's pray together. As you bow your heads, if, if this is in any way confusing to you, you certainly find any of us at the end of the service will pray with you and share our confusion and, and faith in God. But the call of this passage in the end is to have faith, to attain righteousness by believing the gospel that Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, came to earth to live a life that we could never live, that satisfied God in every respect, no sin, all perfect, dying a death we deserved, being buried and having no pulse to be resurrected three days later. Father, I would pray that these truths would sink deep into the hearts of those of us who believe and that we would have pause and be humbled and shudder at your sovereignty, amazed once again. And I pray for unbelievers who have visited with us this morning who may hear this recording. Guard them from being tripped up by the doctrine of sovereignty and woo them by the promise that if they would believe, they can have life everlasting. Give us peace with how your word describes 
faith and sovereignty, responsibility and absolute authority for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.